Welcome to Making the Most of Time with me, Elliot Apple. I'm a financial planner and caregiver. To give you a little background, my dad was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer when I was 25. Our world was changed instantly, and it's been a constant state of change ever since. Since then, I've been learning about the intersection of money, health, and loss, personally and professionally. This is a place to explore money, loss, and grief. It's about making the most of time, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, and financially. There are no taboo topics, no question is off limits. These conversations are for people like you, people who are about to lose a significant other, widows, caregivers, and anybody affected by a major health event. I'm glad you're here. So with that, let's start making the most of time. Buckle up for an emotional ride and prepare to be seen today. Nate Astell, a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified financial therapist, goes into depth about what financial therapy is, how couples can have better conversations around money, what grief looks like, he described it as a tornado, and how to think about your low points in life, whether they are your own or a tough conversation you had with someone before they died. There is a lot to unpack in the conversation today. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nate Astle. Nate, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. I thought maybe we could kick things off just with an introduction about yourself, what financial therapy is, how that differs from traditional therapy, and anything else you think is worth mentioning at the start here. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm Nate Astle. Um, I've been doing financial therapy for about five years now. And uh, so my background is uh, in marriage and family therapy, my kind of home is working with couples um, around a lot of different issues, um, one of them being money. Um, What financial therapy is kind of depends on what angle you're coming at it from. So there's, there are financial planners and financial professionals that practice financial therapy. And a lot of what they do is pretty traditional financial counseling. So they're you know, they're going through a budget with you and they're helping you set financial goals and they're educating you on credit or um, a debt loan or like a loan repayment plan or something like that. Um, They would be doing financial therapy more from a, all right, let's get into the numbers and then how can we be therapeutic while talking about it? So while we're talking about uh, the numbers, how, how are you doing? Are you like, are you doing okay? They're not just going to bulldoze over with a bunch of Excel sheets. Um, because my background is in marriage and family therapy, I probably take a more traditional therapy vibe with a fun financial twist. <laughs> so um, I, a lot of the people I see are coming in for financial conflict. Um, I do see some people with like gambling disorder and things like that. Um, but a, a lot of what we start out doing is talking about the emotions around money um, and why why do you think money is causes you all of these emotions? Like, Because obviously money is a very emotional thing um, and it causes all of us emotions, but for, there are some people that have a level of distress around it that they do need an extra person, that they're not able to just kind of power through or, or handle like they would another area of life. There's people with financial experiences that make, that need an extra bit of help. 
That makes sense. So that is a long-winded answer of a short question. <laughs> no, I appreciate that explanation. As you were talking, I was thinking sort of as someone who's listening or someone out there, how how would you know that you should see a financial therapist? Like where do you see these issues usually come up where someone might need a little extra help or a little extra support? And, you know, are there common situations that that happens or are there feelings that arise? How do people identify that? <laughs> It's hard because um, the same situation for one person may require financial therapy and the same situation in another person might not. So it the classic therapy answer is it depends. <laughs> um, I think what I've seen in my clients that um, you know use my services are if you're noticing that the stress, or the emotions around money, whether it's you know from a loss, or whether it's from you know just dealing with regular financial decisions. Um, if you're noticing that that gets to a level where you're shutting down, or you're avoiding money, or it causes significant conflict in your marriage, it might be a good thing to see someone if it, if that's an option for you. Um, because, you know, problems don't get better if we sweep them under a rug. So we do kind of have to take that next step into, all right, how do I actually get out of this? It's totally fine to need some extra help. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, if someone reaches out and is going to see a financial therapist, what what is that experience like? And how might that differ from sort of therapy that they've had in the past, potentially? Yeah, I mean, again, it depends. But I think the a financial therapist isn't going to shy away from money topics. And we actually know some research out there that uh, most therapists are money avoidant. Hmm. Um, they don't like talking about money. They would rather talk about sex or they would rather talk about in-laws or they'd rather talk about trauma. Um, but you know, it's actually really interesting that a lot of us therapists are money avoidant. Um, and we, we as a group could probably benefit from some financial therapy. Um, but yeah, so a financial therapist like me, who is also a therapist, a regular therapist, um, I'm going to do a lot more work about specific financial memories or impactful moments in your life growing up that, shape how you behave financially now. Um, so, you know, just an example from my own life, uh, my, my parents had a lot of conflict around money and that obviously caused them a lot of resentment in their relationship. But then me growing up, I internalized a lot of that distress. Um, I was money scared the crap out of me going into adulthood because I had seen a lot of conflict around it and it didn't, it was kind of one of these just necessary evils. And when your mindset is money is a necessary evil, it's really hard for you to then make really intentional decisions about preparing for the future or, um, you know, having intentional conversations with a romantic partner about, um, 
how we're going to manage our finances. Like it's hard to do that when money is this inherently bad thing. Um, but a big reason of why I thought that way is because of the experiences I had growing up. Um, so a financial therapist would probably help not just look at your overall, you know, mental health or whatever. And, and obviously therapists widely different in how we provide services, but I think a financial therapist would spend a lot more time on what's your money story? How did you get here? And where do you want to go? Okay. So it sounds like it's sort of backwards looking to explore those memories that have happened. And maybe that's how that's influencing you today. And maybe if you don't want it to influence you in that way, how do you go about solving that? Is that sort of how I'd think about it? Um, it can be. Okay. <laughs> like I said, there, there's a lot of different styles. Some people would only want to prefer to work with current financial stuff. Others might want to be more future focused. All of them have their pros and cons. Um, you know, just the same way. I, I don't know if, if you have experience like going to therapy, but, um, you know, no two therapists are alike. Like I've had really awesome therapy experiences with therapists that I've seen. And then I've had some ones where I'm like, we did not connect. And that was not helpful. Um, and all of them had a different style and a way they asked questions and things that they wanted to focus on. So, um, you know, the field is pretty wide, but that's how I would start financial therapy. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Yeah, I totally understand the things being different as therapists, financial planners, any of them depends who you're with and whether you make that connection or not, whether they're a good individual for your situation. Yeah, exactly. I want to shift gears, shift gears here for a moment to talk about sort of couples. You mentioned at the beginning, you like to work with couples and maybe couples in conflict. So mm-hmm. why, what common issues do you see come up for couples regarding money? Well, there's a whole lot. So it's it's hard for me to say like, oh, that's a common one. I would say, you know, almost stereotypical, like who manages the money? Um, that's, it's obvious that if you don't have discussions around money, at least it feels obvious to me, like it has, it's a breeding ground for conflict because how I think and feel and behave around money might not be how you think or feel or behave. And so if, if my way of doing things isn't how you do it, but I'm holding all the financial power because I'm the one that makes choices or I'm the one who does the mental and emotional labor or, or physical labor of like getting a spreadsheet and all that, like it's work. So if the point is, is if there's only one person in charge um, and the other person is out of the loop, it can cause a ton of conflict. So that's always one of the first things I try and address when working with couples is this has to be an equal power show because both of you engage with money. Um, it doesn't matter if one's a stay at home partner. doesn't matter if, um, you know, one person is making more, this is a both problem and you both need to be tackling it. Mm-hmm. Um, it would kind of, I actually make a lot of comparisons to sex. Like if sex was only up to one person, um, that's that's a breeding ground for really dangerous things. So we have to make sure that this is consensual and that this is a um, open, honest, transparent thing that we're tackling together. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I obviously that's a very broad look, but I would say that how money is divided and how responsibility is shared is a really big one I see a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. And I like your analogy there, just comparing it. When you say it in those words, it becomes very apparent that two people should be involved in that decision. It should be consensual. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious for couples who maybe aren't on the same page or don't have those regular conversations or there is a power dynamic, how do you go about fixing that? Um, I think for me, my style tends to be a little bit, um, I like to call a spade a spade. And so if there isn't a power imbalance and it's obvious, I do like, like, do you two see that? Like, is that something, do you two recognize that this person or this person has, um, has financial power here and see kind of seeing how they react because if I'm not, I don't know everything. Like I don't know this couple and like they know themselves way better than I do. Um, but if I can hypothesize with them, like, I wonder, do you think it's this? And then generally most people are like, uh, maybe, or like a, no, that's not it. And then if it's not, it, I'm like, okay, what, what do you think is happening here? And we being curious about, you know, one, do they see it that way? Do they see that this is a power imbalance? And if they do, we, we can then talk about how did you get here? Um, a lot of times it comes back to gender roles, um, just how they grow up and how women are socialized around money and how men are socialized around money. There's a whole lot of research out there that, that shows that, um, you know, women are taught to save and men are taught to earn uh, money. And so, you know, these kinds of what we call scripts or beliefs that we get from, you know, past generations or these beliefs that we get from our family, some of them might work for us and some of them might not. And so what's important, I think, is for every couple to decide how they want their financial system to work rather than just slide into what they saw growing up or slide into what they think society expects them to do. Yeah, I, I see that come up in my my own client relationships. A lot of times what was taught or what was expected carries through throughout life and that often doesn't change. What yeah. what sort of practices, you know, let's let's assume maybe a couple doesn't have a huge conflict with money, but they're just trying to find best practices or tips to have better conversations around money. What what do you see couples doing? What sort of practices do they set up for sort of star couples, right? That you'd say, hey, that that couple's handling money really well. What are they doing? So if someone's listening, what what would they implement in their life? Um, There is some research, not a lot, but there is some research that suggests um, joint accounts. Couples who have joint accounts tend to have slightly higher relationship satisfaction. Um, I don't I'm a little hesitant about saying like, yeah, everybody go get a joint account. Cause I don't think it's about the joint account. I think it's about transparency. Mm-hmm. It's about couples who make decisions like having a joint account are more likely to talk about money and more likely to make it a team issue rather than a one person issue. So 
I do see that couples, the star couple, um, are, are the ones that are talking about re- money regularly. Um, I would say regularly means at least monthly, if not weekly. Um, it doesn't need to be a huge thing. It doesn't need to be, like, truly, it doesn't need to be more than five minutes. But to sit down and look at, hey, how did we spend our money this week? Is that what we had planned for, budgeted for, or value? Um, and if so, great, cool, babe. See you later. <laughs> or if not, be like, okay, where where was you know wh- where was the hangup? Was this a emergency situation? Was do we need to look again at our budget and see like uh, maybe that worked for us then, but it doesn't work for us now? Um, or was this just a drop the ball moment and we just need to get back on the horse, which is totally fine and valid too. Um, so that that type of communication, though, where it's frequent, it's honest and it's open, and there's teamwork, right? It's about both of us making this work for us and our family. Um, that's that's a big deal um, because a, a problem shared is a problem halved. And so if it's something that I can share with my partner rather than hold on to and wish my partner was doing something about, um, we're, you're going to be in a much better place. Problem shared is a problem halved. I like that language. Yeah, something a, a therapist told me once. <laughs> um, another, you know, kind of thing that I am a huge fan of is a yours, mine, and ours, um, where because all of us do have different money stories and we all have different interests, um, it you know, if I if I wanted, I don't know, buy video games or work on a dirt bike or something. Um, but my partner disagrees. She's going to resent me if I just go and do my own thing. Or if my partner, um, wants to buy clothes or, you know, wants to do this event and I disagree, then I'm going to resent her if she goes and does it anyway. What I find really helpful for couples is, okay, we have, you look at all your income, Um, No matter who's bringing it in, just like, okay, our total income is X dollars. And then look at the things. What are the things that we both benefit from that is we know we have to pay? So rent, um, insurance, you know, do all the expected ones. um, And then look at the ones that you still both benefit from, but the dollars might go up and down. Things like groceries or haircuts or like random things like that. so you you look at those, okay? And then what you have left over, you might decide to put into savings or whatever, but come up with a dollar amount that each of you can spend in whatever way you want. Um, if I want to spend my $200 this month on snow cones, then I get to do that and you don't get to say a word of it. <laughs> it's my money and you have your money and we have our money. Um, and then... What that does is it allows couples to be individuals. It's a, it allows you to have your own interests and your own passions. Um, and it's still responsible because you're taking your partner's 
well-being in mind. Like it's it's not just the well, this is what I want to do, and we have the money for it. It's like well, this is what we both agreed on that we have X amount of dollars for this, um, and you can spend it how you want. And maybe you want to save it up for a few months and buy something big, or maybe you want to. You know, you don't want to eat dinner one night, and so you get to use your own money and eat out. I, I don't know. This is just an example, but having having something that allows the couple or allows the finance finances of the home be serving both couple purposes and individual purposes. Okay, so it sounds like frequent communication, a yours, mine, and ours sort of bucket transparency. Anything else you see successful couples do? It's it's easier said than done, but but that um, teamwork attitude mm-hmm. can do a whole lot. Um, and this is not this is true for a lot of things, not just money, right? If uh, you know raising kids is something that you're doing. Um, if your idea is that just one partner does all the child rearing, that's you're you're gonna have some conflict there, mm-hmm. um, because this is a joint venture, right? This isn't just one partner's. And again, this is where gender roles are really important to examine. Um, but let, you know, this is a both of us kind of thing, and we both need to be aware of not only the what we call the physical load, so like actually making sure that the kids are dressed and that the kids have food and all that kind of stuff. But the mental load, um, thinking about when do I need to set up that next appointment and thinking about all that stuff that might not have a physical way of manifesting itself, but still represents a lot of mental stress. These are the things that partners need to share. So it's not just about, well, one partner makes money. Um, It's about all the emotional and mental labor that goes into thinking about, you know, how do I succeed at my job and all that kind of stuff. So Anyway, I am blabbering way too much, but yes, there's the teamwork attitude does a lot to take money from being this big, scary thing to just another thing that I get to do with my partner. Yeah, I I really like that teamwork attitude because it's, I find for myself even, it's hard to forget. I mean, it's easy to forget that, you know, like this money, it's a tool, but it also requires some teamwork behind it to be able to do something. And we were doing that as a team, not individually. Right. Um, exactly. I'm curious when we think about sort of the the framework, you know, you mentioned at least monthly or potentially weekly, even if it's for five minutes sitting down. Do you have a format that you like to see those conversations take place, whether that's a certain time or a venue or an activity? Because I think that can be daunting for a lot of people who aren't used to this habit. You know, how do I go about setting that up and what should that look like? Yeah. Um, if there's, if you're noticing that, okay, I know my partner and I need to start having these more conversations more regularly and you notice that, oh, I'm feeling a lot of anxiety about this or um, that the idea of having this conversation stresses me out, um, go to someplace fun. Go to someplace that you associate with positive things happening. You know, do it on a walk, go on a park. Um, it, Like I said, you don't, not every time does it have to be sitting down and looking at spreadsheets <laughs> because 
you know, quite honestly, for most people eventually are going to get bored of that. Um, I know there's people like you, Elliot, who loves, <laughs> who love the kind of stuff, but most of us don't. And so, um, you know, being able to associate, oh, money is, doesn't have to be this big, scary thing. Money can be a positive thing. So yeah, I, I think going to places that you associate positively can be helpful. Um, I definitely recommend having conversations when you have the body resources for it. And what I mean by body resources is that you're fed, you've, you've slept okay. Um, and you know, you're not lonely or angry, right? Like you're going into the conversation with a decent attitude. Um, if you're going into it and you've had a really long day and you haven't had dinner yet, and then your partner says, okay, hon, time to sit down and look at the budget. You, uh, you're not going to do your best couple work there. So yeah, make sure your body needs are taken care of. Make sure, um, make sure you drink water. Make sure you have, um, you know, something to hold in your hand. If you're like me, I, I'm very tactile. I, I need like, I need a pen in my hand that I can kind of squeeze and, and rotate around and click it if I need to. But these kinds of things do a lot to calm our, our nervous system and to help us regulate. Um, if I'm well regulated, I'm going to do better at having the conversation. Um, now, for some of you, you, there might be a time when you really do need to look at numbers and, and show them, okay, this is where we're at. Um, and I would recommend doing that at least monthly. But, you know, e even that, maybe you have a dessert with it, or even that you, ha you know, you make your favorite drink, um, doing something like that, that's like, oh, okay, like this is, yeah, this isn't maybe the most fun activity in the world, but this ice cream is pretty good. Um, we have to learn to associate money with positive things because for most of us, many of us, at least money is a kind of a negative experience or at least represents a significant stressor in our lives. Yeah. I, I love the advice about picking something fun, making sure that you're well nourished in whatever way that shows up for you. And um, I often encourage couples to do, do something fun, particularly if they're looking at a spreadsheet, because I, I recognize for me, it's fun, but I know for a lot of people, my fiance included, it is not a fun thing to do. And so anytime that we can incorporate mm -hmm. dessert or a fun beverage or something else, it the conversations always go better. And I hear that from others as well. Yeah, um, for sure. Is there anything else related to couples and money that you think is worth mentioning before we get on another topic? I, I know this is a, a class issue and a privilege issue, but if you can, um, don't be afraid of couples therapy. Mm. Like it, it can be a scary thing. It can be intimidating. I can be vulnerable, all those things. But if you, if that's an option for you, um, it can make a world of difference. And I'm speaking this, this as a couples therapist, but I'm also speaking about it from someone who's had couples therapy. Um, my partner and I have a great marriage. Um, we, we really do. And we've had bumpy parts and that's okay to need a little extra help and to have someone that isn't your partner say things to you that maybe you need to hear, or maybe your partner needs to hear. So if, if you can, if money is one of those topics, um, 
there's probably other topics where you feel like maybe we could use an extra person here. Um, the dynamics you see in money often replicate in other areas of life. Um, and that's something I do in my couples therapies. I ask, okay, you're, so you're saying when you talk about money, you feel really powerless. Are there other areas in your marriage that you feel powerless? Are there other areas in your marriage where you don't feel like you can communicate your emotions? Are there other areas in your marriage where you feel incompetent or stupid? Um, you you can do a lot of really deep relational work that way. So I would, yeah, if, if you have the means and ability to, um, couples therapy can be a really positive thing. Yeah, I, I love that advice, Nate, because it just as you're saying that and all the ways that money shows up and where it shows up in other parts of life and whether it's impacting that, I could see that happening a lot and how it, you just, you shouldn't be in that situation for a long period of time. And the fact that someone could help you get out of it is a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. I want to move on to another topic. So we've talked about couples. I want to talk about somewhere else where I spend a lot of my time is with widows and loss of partners, loss of spouses. What, what have you experienced through the grieving process or what, what do you see people in their grieving process? So for example, you know, I think widow brain or brain fog often comes up for call it six to 18 months for a lot of people, but what, what does a grieving process usually look like? Yeah. Um, grief is complicated. Um, Quite honestly, there, there are certain things that therapists can treat. So d- depression, for example, or anxiety, or, or even more serious things like bipolar. Mm-hmm. Um, grief is really hard to treat. And the reason is, is so um, there's so many emotions that go into it. So I, I have a lot of empathy for people in the grieving process because I, I think of grief like a tornado, okay, um, where at, at the bottom of the tornado, things are happening really fast. Um, the wind is going, uh, it's hard to show you without a little diagram mm-hmm. of a tornado, but um, at the start, you are going to be hit with sad and fear and maybe anger and loneliness and that's going to be hitting you frequently right after a loss um and quite honestly there's not a whole lot that you can do of course you know building support systems of course being open about your feelings um if you have the ability and means to seeing a therapist that you have a place to talk about what you're experiencing um, it is not a good thing to bury your grief, okay? Um, but the truth is, is it will come. But as as you go from the bottom upwards, that kind of going from the bottom upwards is kind of like the time. There will be moments where the grief hits you. It's just less often and it's less um, less intense. But we, it's unfair to promise that grief is going to be gone because it probably won't, um, but it'll change and it will get less intense and less frequent as time goes on. Um, another really important thing here 
and I, I promise we'll get to the money stuff, but I, since I have the platform, those are really important. Yeah. I think, um, grief sometimes in, in our culture, um, at, at least in Western American culture, a lot of times grief is seen as this something where we let the person go, you know, we, we, they pass away. We have a funeral, perhaps we have these rituals where it's about us letting go, but that's very opposite of what we actually need. We actually just need to accept that our relationship with them has changed. Mm. And it's actually grief healing from grief is much more about connecting with the individual that's passed on, um, finding ways to, Oh, my, that, uh, my partner used to love birds. So every time I see a bird, I, I think of my partner, or maybe if, if you're religious, you maybe you um, believe in spirits or, or whatever, whatever concept helps you understand and conceptualize the afterlife, or if, if that's something you believe in, but ha- being able to connect with a deceased loved one in meaningful ways does a whole lot to help minimize the impact of the grief. You're still going to feel it. It's still going to be intense, but it's a lot easier when you know, okay, I have ways that I can connect with them. And maybe it's, yeah, maybe it's seeing them in a bird. Maybe it's eating their favorite dish. Uh, maybe it's talking to them. Um, you know, I, that was something my, when my grandma passed away, my mom would talk to her mom a lot and my mom talks to herself all the time anyway. Um, but that was that was her method of processing and it was beautiful and i'm glad that she had that so finding ways to connect um is really important now to get on to the money stuff um dealing with the finances after a loved one is extra extra hard especially if they were the ones that knew where money was and was the main, you know, financial, maybe held most of the financial power in the home. Um, so it, it's extra rough. I definitely would encourage you to get outside help, whether that's a financial planner or um, someone that can sit down and share this burden with you. Because if it's all on you, um, it's it's going to be rough. Um, so that's honestly, that's why I think the work you do is so important, Elliot, is... Um, People need an extra person there. Um, I also want to, sorry, you can stop me at any point if I'm talking too much. No, no, I, I think it's great. I like the, I'm just thinking back to the visual of the tornado is I think something I'm going to borrow going forward. Cause it, it just fits perfectly with what I've experienced with people and that things move quickly. Your emotions are changing all the time. And you know, the farther you get away from, whatever event occurred, if that's a loss of a spouse, the, the less frequent those changes come, but they still happen. And then, you know, having an advocate, whether that's a financial planner or just a family friend or, uh, someone else, right. Just someone when your brain, you know, I always describe it as your brain's not functioning to its fullest potential. It's not functioning as it should during that time. And, you know, we all think like, we're not going to hop in a car when our brain is impaired. Well, we wouldn't do the same thing with our money when we're making those sort of decisions. So I, I love that you brought mm-hmm. that up, whoever's there to help you with that. So continue on. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Um, 
you're you're absolutely right. I think the other thing is if you can learn to expect the grief when doing money, um, if you if you know, okay, money is is it's gonna cause me some distress here. Um, you can expect those in the moment. And when you're looking, if you're trying to find this document or you're looking for the account number for this account, um, it's okay to expect I might find myself hit randomly with the grief again, or maybe I'm hit with some anger. And that's not something that we like to admit, but anger is part of grieving. Um, you know, it's, we expect to feel sad. We might even expect to feel afraid of being lonely or, or whatever. Um, but anger is a really common experience in our grief. It can be anger at our, dis, our partner or, or the person who's passed away. It can be anger at ourselves. Um, but anger is normal. And it's not unhealthy, despite what we might think. Um, anger is a normal part of life, and it's part of our grief. And we are allowed to experience that and should expect to experience that as we're figuring out all of our money stuff. Anger is a normal part of grief. I I just want to repeat that because I feel like it's something that we try to shy away from. We shy away from those emotions and we don't share them and we try to bottle them down. And I feel like as a non-therapist, I feel like that harms sort of your grieving process and what you're going through. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really unfair to not give ourselves the right to anger. Um, because, you know, we, you know, you don't want to be angry at someone's funeral or something. And these are, there's a lot of social norms about what is appropriate and what's not appropriate when it comes to grieving. But uh, anger is part of it. And the other... Sorry, I'm going really deeply philosophical, and it's only because I've recently had this conversation with my partner. But let's say um, I, I've had several people come come to me because they lost a partner or a parent, and their last conversation wasn't the best. Maybe they had a fight or something. But your relationship with someone is not just that single point at the end. Your relationship is a thousand points all along. And maybe there are some high points and there's probably some low points. Um, and if something happened at the end of someone's life, it doesn't negate all of the other experiences that you've had with that person. Um, so, you know, if, if you start noticing that my someone passed away and I'm angry at them, um, or I feel angry towards the experience, that doesn't negate all the positive stuff either. It's just one point in a million points that you might've had with that person. Um, it's So I, I would just encourage people in that process, one, get the help that you need. And two, um, there's no right way to do it. You are allowed your journey as you learn to go through and connect differently with a, with a person that's passed away. I wish I could bottle that sentiment up, Nate, and ship it to people across the U.S. and that <laughs> your last conversation or a negative conversation doesn't negate everything that happened prior to then. Because I feel like a lot of people get stuck on 
something unfortunate that happened, but it, you know, you have this whole lifetime together and these lifetime of memories and we're just, we're fixated on the one negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, are there other things that people, when they lose a spouse that they should do or not do from your perspective? And the type of thing that comes to mind for me is a lot of times I feel like making a major financial decision, maybe selling a home in the first year is not a great move, but I also recognize that for some people, it's either a financial necessity or an emotional necessity. Um, so I'm, I'm curious just to get your thoughts on either that or other things. Yeah, no, that see, that's brilliant. I, I totally agree with you. Um, I'm hesitant. I'm hesitant to say this. These are the shoulds of grief because I don't believe that. But um, in general, we do want to make our financial choices based on um, based on our thinking brains, right? Um, we have our, our prefrontal cortex up by the forehead that is in charge of our problem solving, our rational decision making, our, our logic. And then we have the parts in the back, um, your amygdala, and um, your hippocampus, a couple other places that process emotions. And your amygdala and hippocampus are going to be crazy. Um, they're sorry, not they, they are going to be highly activated um, with in a grief process. And so when they're doing that, it's pretty much impossible to be using your thinking brain. So yes, I in general, I do recommend avoiding major choices when your emotions are that high. But like you said, um, easier said than done. For some people, they have to. Mm-hmm. And there's no shame in that. And you do what you have to do to survive. Um, it's the same thing with couples considering divorce. Um, when couples come in and they're on the brink of divorce, I say, okay, I understand you're on the brink of divorce. It isn't my job to make you stay together. That's not what I want to do. I just want you to be intentional about it. So I ask them for at least eight weeks in couples therapy to like, all right, let's check in again at eight weeks and see, um, like things might not be perfect, but are they moving in a direction that you like, or do we need to talk about a different situation? So yeah, the, the selling of the houses is the same idea. Like give yourself as much room as possible to make, uh, choices that your thinking brain will approve of. Appreciate your perspective, Nate, and your your language around that. It's clear you <laughs> have thought about that and have some experience within that. I I think I'm going to go back and listen to that to 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 gather some of that and get better phrasing for myself. <laughs> um, I want to shift gears once again um, here as we sort of wrap up. I want really two things. One, is there anything that you want to promote? Anything else you want to mention about our conversation? And then I have a final question that I ask every podcast guest. Um, I, I don't have anything to promote. I mean, any of your listeners can follow me. Um, I, I have a LinkedIn and a Twitter. Um, my business is Relational Money. It's the name of my private practice. Um, 
I no, honestly, I, I appreciate you having me on and, um, you know, being able to talk about these things or these are things that I care deeply about. And so I'm, yeah, I appreciate you having me. Of course, it's clear your clients are very lucky to have you. I feel like I could do probably six of these different sessions on different therapy and pick your brain and get to know what's out there. Um, but I want to wrap up with a question that I ask every podcast guest, and that is, what is one act of kindness that's been transformational in your life? Um, well, not to get too cheesy for me, it was my, um, my partner, she and I have been married for almost seven years now. And, um, I had a lot of shame growing up due to a lot of different circumstances, but, but shame was a big feeling I had about who I was. I didn't have the greatest self-esteem. And, uh, because of that, I made some choices, um, when I was younger that I did not match my value system. Um, and, and she told me we, we'd gotten engaged and I was feeling down and she was talking to me and she said something that has permanently seared into my memory is your mistakes don't define you. Um, and those words, those kind words kind of shaped a lot of pieces of my life. Um, you know, I, it kind of, it goes back to what we're talking about, about like a negative conversation at the end of someone's life. It doesn't define the relationship and your low points that you have as an individual, whether they're financial low points, whether they're um, personal low points, their emotional low points, they don't define the essence of who you are. Um, you are of value simply because you're a human. And that, that kindness she showed to me is something that I've trying to um, be kind to myself. And that's something I would encourage listeners to is no amount of work will, will make up for what kindness can do. Um, you can work harder than anybody in the world, but if you're not kind to yourself, you won't feel better. So learning to show yourself the kindness that you would expect from others or hope from others, um, maybe the kindness you would show a friend or a loved one, um, learning to internalize that as self-love can be a beautiful, beautiful thing. Beautifully said, mate. I really appreciate you sharing. Yeah. Thanks. This is fun. I like this. Thanks for having me. Of course. I appreciate you being here. Elliot Apple is an investment advisor representative of Kindness Financial Planning, LLC. However, in hosting this podcast, Elliot is not acting as an investment advisor representative individually or on behalf of Kindness Financial Planning. The information and opinions in this podcast are for general, informational, and educational purposes only and should not be considered investment, financial, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication, and such opinions are subject to change. No representation is made as to the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Any past performance referenced is historical and no guarantee of future results. All indices referenced are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. All investments involve a certain level of risk. You should carefully consider if an investment is suitable for you before making an investment. Please consult your legal, financial, and other professionals to determine what may be appropriate for you.